The Book Nook on WYSO is presented by the Greene County Public Library with additional support from Clark County Public Library, Dayton Metro Library, Washington Centerville Public Library, and Wright Memorial Public Library. Hello, welcome to the Book Nook on WYSO. I'm Vic McCunis, and today I'd like to welcome to the program Edmund Richardson. He's got a new book. It's called The King's Shadow, Obsession, Betrayal, and the Deadly Quest for the Lost City of Alexandria. Welcome to the program today. Thank you so much. It's an absolute honor to be on it. Where are you exactly at the moment? At the moment, I'm in London. Uh Uh-huh. London, England, not London, Ohio. London, England. There are more than a few Londons, but the one I'm in is the one in England, absolutely. I understand there are also more than a few uh, Alexandrias. I was not aware of this. I just assumed that the only one was in Egypt. I think we need to to, uh, give our listeners some background here on this before we get into the meat of the book. Uh, Who was Alexander the Great? Uh, What did he do? So Alexander the Great was... To all appearances, a very ordinary boy from the hills of Maston until he succeeded to his father's throne and began one of the most remarkable and world-changing expeditions in history. He led a sort of little ragtag army east from Greece into the vast Persian Empire. And Persia was the world's superpower at the time. It had far more money, far more far greater armies and, um, you know, just, just was, was on a, a, a world on a different scale to anything the Greeks had ever known. But Alexander takes the power of Persia to pieces in a series of campaigns. He conquers Asia Minor, he conquers Egypt, he conquers the heartland of the Persian Empire, you know, what would be Turkey and Iran today. And then he leads his, his army, these Greeks who've um, gone further than even the gods of Greece, there to go before. He leads them even further east into modern-day Afghanistan and Pakistan until on the banks of an Indian river after a decade's campaigning, his soldiers lay lay down their arms and say, we can go no further. The world is too much for us. And Alexander reluctantly leads his men home and he dies um, at the age of 33 um, in Babylon. Um, So Alexander's story is one of the most remarkable in history, really. And he, through wherever he went, um, whether it was Egypt or Asia Minor or Afghanistan or Persia, he founded cities and called all of these cities after himself, Alexandria. Now, everyone, of course, knows that Alexandria in Egypt, but there were at least two dozen more Alexandrias. Some ancient historians say there were maybe 70 or even 80 of them. Oh. They're dotted, dotted all across the known, known world, and really they're Alexander's greatest legacy because they're these little outposts of Greek culture um, across the known world, and from them, you know, Egyptian and Persian and Indian ideas spread to Greece and Greek ideas spread to Egypt and Persia and India. So there are these little little outposts which go on to change the world and change the way the ancient world connects. 
And are most of these locations um, unknown today? Most of them are unknown. Like we know quite a few of them. We've done excavations over you know the last four or five decades, which have revealed quite a few of them. But but most of them are still really little more than you know pins stuck into a map, a little more than a scholar's best guesses. And the reason for that is that we our sources are evidence for Alexander the Great's life is so comically bad. Um, we have like a few ancient historians, none of whom really agree with each other about anything, um, <laughs> all of whom are writing centuries after Alexander the Great actually lived, and none of whom have really seen or visited most of the places where his expedition took place. So we're really kind of guessing as to a lot of the fundamental details of what these cities were and where they were located and, you know, what life was like for these Greeks who suddenly found themselves, you know, setting up home on the plains of Central Asia when they'd expected to live out their lives in the, in the hills of Greece. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Book Nook. My guest is Edmund Richardson. He joins us on the telephone in England today. His new book is The King's Shadow, Obsession, Betrayal, and the Deadly Quest for the Lost City of Alexandria. And this is a story of a man who I had never heard of, and I'm going to guess that 99.9% of our listeners have never heard of him either. How did you hear about him? It was completely by chance, I've got to admit. There was no grand plan. Um, my protagonist is someone called Charles Masson, um, or at least that's the name he goes by. It's not his real name. Um, and I came upon him when I was trying to find out um, about Alexander's cities. I was thinking maybe there's a new way to tell the story of Alexander the Great. Maybe there's a way to tell it through his cities, through the, 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 the places he set up to try to change the world. And I was reading about one of his cities in Afghanistan called Alexandria Beneath the Mountains. And as you, as, as you sort of do, you, you, you look at one piece of evidence and then another piece of evidence and then and then you look at this sort of obscure footnote and you're like, wait a minute, what? Because everything we knew about the city appeared to be coming from this one guy in the 19th century who, like 99.9% of people listening, I'm sure, I had never heard of, someone called Charles Masson. And there's this little scrap of um, a story about him that he was a he was a deserter from the British East India Company who went on the run and then made this remarkable discovery and then and then and then the, the sort of details teetered out and I, I was just I was just sort of smitten and fascinated and I, I tried to find out a little bit more about him and you know, as as with all of the best stories, the closer I look, the stranger it got. Mm. Um I found one account of his life which seemed to make sense and then I found another account of his life, which completely disagreed with the first one. Then I found another account of his life where it was from an entirely different perspective again. So this is a, someone who made really discoveries which shaped the way we understand the world today, but was also a complete mystery. So mm. I've got to admit, I just, I just fell head over heels for the mystery. I, mean, I spent... Well, it must be the best part of 10 years, like chasing the story across the world and trying to figure out uh, 
who this who this guy was and 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 how he'd come to make these remarkable discoveries. You mentioned already that these ancient historians had completely different uh, opinions and, and histories of Alexander, and now we've got this Masson, and the accounts of him all are com- at complete variance with one another. I think before we get into his story, we need a little more background on a, a very important organization which you just mentioned, and that's the East India Company. I, I think uh, some of our listeners probably are not aware exactly what that company did and just what a powerful force they were. So the British East India Company, if you went by its offices in London, it's a sort of low, squat, gray building full, full of clerks sometime in the 1820s, um, it would look not terribly impressive, much like any other down at heel office building in London. There's the rustle of papers, the smoke in the chimneys, there's, you know, people in the attics pushing paper around. But then you realize that this little office building, this few stories high gray stone building in, in the east end of London, is where is the place from where much of the entire Indian subcontinent is governed. Because British power in India in the early 19th century, 1820s, 1830s, isn't exercised by the British government. It's exercised by a private corporation, mm. the British East India Company. Now, William Dalrymple has told the story of the East India Company wonderfully, and he calls it the world's first multinational, which I think is probably right, that this is a multinational corporation with its own private army, with spies everywhere, with the power of life and death over an entire subcontinent. Basically, they were licensed by the British crown to trade between Britain and the East, and they set up initially like little trading posts on the on the coasts of India, but gradually they sought more and more power, and they bullied and blackmailed and deposed and waged war until by the early 19th century they are the dominant power in India. So it's an incredibly weird quirk of history where one of the most Indeed, the most important British imperial possession is governed by and is run for the profit of a private corporation. And back in the 1820s, one of their uh, soldiers in their army in India was the guy who was to become Charles Masson, and uh, he decided he'd had enough. So Charles Masson um, is born... James Lewis, an incredibly ordinary working-class Londoner who enlists in the army of the East India Company. And after about seven or eight years, um, marching up and down India, enforcing British imperial rule, he's just as poor and just as unnoticed as he was when he first enlisted. And after, at some point, something just snaps in him. And he decides, you know what, I've had enough of this. And he one day sets out from the camp, the British camp in Agra, um, on a, just off across India on foot with no idea where he's going, none of the local languages, no money. And, of course, he's deserted from the British East India Company, so he also has a death sentence hanging over his head. It's an incredibly risky move. Um, 
but it looks like at some point he just had enough of um, that life and he sets out in search of something different, something better for himself. And this was the beginning of what became an epic journey, and we're going to talk more about that in the book nook with my guests today, the author of The King's Shadow, Edmund Richardson. Right after this message, uh, we'll, we'll bring you more of the book nook. You're listening to 91.3 WYSO, community-owned public radio for curious listeners, and I've been joined on the telephone by Edmund Richardson. His book is The King's Shadow, Obsession, Betrayal, and the Deadly Quest for the Lost City of Alexandria. All right, Charles Masson has decided to desert his post as a soldier with the British East India Company. He's uh, on foot. He's leaving India uh, tell us about his journey. This is pretty spectacular stuff. He is, without doubt, the most hapless traveler <laughs> you have ever imagined. Um, he basically just sort of wanders off from his regiment and sets out across the plains of India. He has no idea where he's going. He speaks none of the local languages. He has no food. He has no money. Um, he's reduced to basically begging by the side of the road, sleeping in ditches. Um, he is robbed of what little he possesses several times over. He's robbed of his clothes. He's stripped to his underwear. He's robbed of his shoes. He has to sleep in the frostbitten cold on mountains. Um, he almost dies of fever. He's almost killed a whole bunch of times. He goes off into the hills with robbers. Um, who make a whole bunch of jokes about killing him. Um, he, the idea that he survives more than a week of this is remarkable once you kind of read a little bit about just how little he knew what he was doing. But somehow he does survive and he does persist. He learns the local languages. He learns how to survive from the kindness of strangers, to beg for food, to ask for hospitality from a caravan of merchants. He learns a few words of the languages enough to, to get by, to make conversation, to talk his way out of trouble. He, he figures out he's a great talker. Um, he can talk his way into trouble, but he also starts to be able to talk his way out of trouble. And despite the chaos, despite almost dying once a week, he gradually, more and more, just absolutely falls in love with this part of the world, with the plains and the mountains of northern India and Afghanistan. Um, he, he finds himself absolutely captivated, not just by the country as it is in the present day, but also by its past and by stories of Alexander the Great. Um, because like just about everyone else in Britain, he's grown up on stories of Alexander and of this expedition which struck out into the unknown and changed the world. Um, but for the first time in hundreds of years, he realizes there's the chance for someone who's actually on the spot, someone who's actually in the places where Alexander's expedition passed, to tell its story. And it's the chance to kind of embark on this great quest 
and go in search of Alexander that really keeps him going when everything else seems to be against him. All this time, as he wanders, he's a wanted man, and the tentacles of the East India Company extend a long way. They have spies all over the place, and in fact, as the story develops, eventually his identity is discovered, and he becomes a spy for the East India Company. This, this whole thing is, is, is so cloak and dagger. Everyone is lying. Everyone is telling four different stories at once. Everyone is trying to talk their way out of trouble. Um, and yeah, Masson is hunted for years by the British East India Company, particularly by someone called Claude Wade, who's the company's spy master in northern India. And Wade eventually figures out that Charles Masson, the archaeologist, the man who's trying to find traces of Alexander the Great, is actually James Lewis, the wanted deserter. And after that, Wade is basically able to blackmail him and basically say, look, you do exactly as you're told, you spy for us, you betray your Afghan friends, or you know, you're going to be hunted down and put to death. And so it's a world of imperial ambitions where Britain is trying to extend its power into Afghanistan, where other imperial powers are equally trying to get a foothold. It's a world where everyone is watching over their shoulders very closely for when the next knife is going to come. Mm. If you're just joining us, my guest is Edmund Richardson. We're talking about his book, The King's Shadow. And uh, he becomes... You, you you called him an archaeologist. He becomes this incredible scholar. Let's talk about the coins, because the coins are really the, the key to, to so much of this story. So the first hint that Charles Nelson gets, that he might actually be on the right lines, that he might be close to finding one of Alexander's lost cities, is with a single ancient copper coin. It's battered, defaced, impossibly old. It's like a message from another world. And he picks it up. He's, he's given it by an old man on the plains of Bagram, just outside Kabul in Afghanistan. And this old coin um, is the first of tens of thousands which he recovers from all over Afghanistan, but particularly from the plains of Bagram. Now, when you find little things like coins on the surface of the soil, it often means that there's something much more substantial hidden underneath, because as the soil moves, as it's tilled over, as, as, as you know, moisture and changes of temperature bring things that were submerged to the surface, little objects like coins frequently come to light. But below there, Nassim thought possibly he was literally standing on the walls of Alexander's city. But the coins don't just tell him that. They tell him something much more interesting. And that's something about the world that he was in the process of uncovering. Initially, he's no idea what these coins say. There is an inscription on one side, in one kind of writing, there's an inscription on the other side in another kind of writing. But pretty quickly he realizes that the inscription on the front is in ancient Greek. 
and he's able to decipher the Greek. The, the names of the kings, the titles, uh, the people who ruled this city founded by Alexander in the years and the centuries after Alexander's death. But the inscriptions on the back remain a mystery. Until one day, he looks at the coins for what must have been the hundredth time, and he makes one of his great discoveries. He realizes that the inscriptions on the front of the coins always start with the same phrase, Basileus Basileon, King of Kings. And the inscriptions on the back also start with the same collection of characters. He realizes the coins are bilingual, they're little Rosetta stones. And this is how he's able to decipher the long forgotten language, the long lost language of this part of the world. It was something called Karosvi, and no one had been able to read it for well over one and a half thousand years. Um, so the coins are his passport into a world which scholarship at the time had not even begun to imagine. This incredible multicultural ancient world where Greeks and Afghans and Indians and Persians are all in conversation with each other, where coins and inscriptions are bilingual, where all of these cultures are not you know, existing behind high walls, shouting at each other. They're reaching out from each other. They're living to each other. They're, they're living side by side is one of his greatest discoveries. And the coins are key to that. And he found so many. He, he bought coins from locals who had uh, dug them up. And he just, he, he had bags and bags and bags of coins and, and other things. He, he was digging into um, burial uh, places. And so were other, there, there was competition. There were other people digging into these burial places. And one of the things that we learn is that this ancient culture at one point was very Buddhist. And I can remember with horror when the Taliban was destroying those giant uh, stone Buddhas. And uh, he spent some time in that valley. And I think one of my favorite uh, chuckles in the story came when uh, these other uh, archaeologists years later are, are up in one of these uh, passageways behind one of these Buddhas thinking, oh, no one else has been here. <laughs> and uh, and they, they they were so they were so happy you know they they just two a couple a couple of French archaeologists um you know decades after Nassim went to Bamiyan and they were so happy because they were sliding down a cliff face into a, into a cave behind one of those gigantic statues of the Buddha now horrifically destroyed by the Taliban of course um but. They they arrived in this cave and they caught their breath and they looked around and you know they were thinking this is their kind of you know Indiana Jones type moment right this is the yeah. the, the moment that everyone's going to remember them for because mm. no one could have no one else could have set foot in this cave for like hundreds of years and so they're looking around and they're peering around and one of them holds up a light um, to the wall of the cave and and his heart just just sinks because on the wall of the cave he sees couple of lines of rude verse, um, you know, just, just scratched into the wall. If any fool this high Samuch, meaning cave, if any fool this high Samuch explore, no Charles Nassim has been here before. <laughs> and off they slunk with their tails between their legs. And right, right below it, it said Kilroy was here. No, I'm just kidding. Absolutely. <laughs> 
My guest is Edmund Richardson. The book is The King's Shadow, Obsession, Betrayal, and the Deadly Quest for the Lost City of Alexandria. I love it when he encounters these other Westerners, these other uh, very eccentric travelers. One of them was actually from the United States. These are some really bizarre gentlemen. One of my favorite characters um, is indeed the first American to set foot in modern-day Pakistan and Afghanistan, um, Josiah Harlan um, from uh, Pennsylvania. Um, and Harlan is a wonderful character. Um, he sets out um, initially, um, you know, as a, to, to, to make his fortune trading in the East. Um, makes a few voyages, learns how to haggle with traders in the back streets, and, um, you know, comes back to America, falls in love, and tells his fiance, look, I'm going to do one more voyage, and then we're going to, I'm going to come back, and we're going to live happily ever after. And, you know, she, she, um, she, she wears them off at the pier and um, says, uh, don't worry, I'll, I'll wait for you, you know, have a wonderful voyage. And when he gets to Calcutta, um, he finds a letter waiting for him from his fiance saying that she's broken off the marriage and married someone else. Now, what I like about this is that um, in order to, for this letter to be waiting for him in Calcutta, <laughs> it would, of course, have had to be sent well before his ship left San Francisco. <laughs> so that was how you broke up with someone and uh, made it stick um, in the early 19th century. But Harlan, of course, gets into a terrible huff. He um, goes off into northern India as a soldier of fortune. Um, he attaches himself to an exiled Afghan king called Shah Shuja, and he promises the Shah that he will be able to restore him to the throne of Afghanistan. Of course, he's never been to Afghanistan. He speaks none of the languages. Um, but these Saharan are kind of minor inconveniences, right? So when Masson meets him, he's off, he's setting off um, into Afghanistan with this ragtag army of mercenaries and this beloved dog whom he calls Dash. Um, and, um, you know, very, very sure that he's the 19th century's answer to Alexander the Great. Now, this really is the milder end of Josiah Harlan's exploits. Um, he he uh, turns up as a governor of Gujarat. Um, he turns up um, leading an army across the Caucasus Mountains and unfurling the American flag atop the atop the mountain passes. Um, he turns up, um, you know, doing all kinds of things and getting up to pretty much every kind of no good that could be got <laughs> up to in the early 19th century. Um, it's one of my one of my favorite moments um, when I was when I was researching the book was coming across. Um, Harlan's um, diaries and his papers, which are uh, which are all kept um, in the wonderful um, a wonderful historical society in Chester County, Pennsylvania. But it's like all of all of his like exploits, all of his tall tales, and a rather splendid document which he tried to claim made him an Afghan prince. Um, so, so yeah, there are there are some wild characters wandering this part of the world at the time. And this is a, a cautionary tale. I, I can remember 20 years ago when uh, the United States decided that Osama bin Laden was uh, a reason to invade Afghanistan, also to uh, try to knock the Taliban out of power in Afghanistan. Um, we had the, the lesson before of, of what happened with 
the Soviet Union when they went into Afghanistan. But as we go back over the, the centuries and the millennia, we see a lot of examples of uh, bad decisions trying to invade Afghanistan. And, and the British certainly made one of those. And there's a lot of tragedy at the end of this story. There's the tragedy of what the British did going into Afghanistan and, and what happened to them, and then how Masson gets entangled in all this, and uh, it, it really brings him his own uh, fate and his own doom. And uh, it's just, it's fascinating. The whole story is, is just amazing. And we'll continue my conversation with Edmund Richardson about the King's Shadow right after this. The book note continues on WYSO. My guest today, Edmund Richardson. He joins us on the telephone in London, England. We're talking about his new book, The King's Shadow, Obsession, Betrayal, and the Deadly Quest for the Lost City of Alexandria. In the book, you talk about that part of history and, and uh, how it ended. And at one point, poor Charles Masson uh, finds himself in a city with this really horrible person, this, this, this British officer who is running this city, I think is probably one of the worst people I've ever heard about. He is absolutely the worst, um, even by the standards of British imperial functionaries in the 19th century. And, and that is, a he is a bottom of the barrel kind of character. Now, this is, after the British have decided to invade Afghanistan. And Masson has had to leave Kabul. Um, he's resigned his role as a spy with the East India Company. And the invasion has just kind of broken him because all of his friends, all of the people who had supported him and helped him when he had nothing, when he was just living off the kindness of strangers, have been persecuted, have been driven out of their homes, have been put to flight by this new British regime. Nassim is trying to find his way back into Afghanistan. He's trying to find his way to solving the mystery of Alexandria for good. But he ends up caught up in a rebellion against the British power, against the British occupation, in a little town called Kalat. And he's shut up there with the British governor, if you like, the political officer of Kalat, is someone called William Loveday, who is truly the worst. Um, he's someone who enslaves local people in order to build himself a house. He's someone who feeds people to his dogs. He's someone who makes jokes about putting people to death, um, strapping them to cannons and blowing them to pieces. And he's someone who just loots his way through um, India and Afghanistan. His house is full of things which he's stolen from the nobility of the region. So this is the very worst person you want to be shut up in a town with. And for Nassim, it's absolutely disastrous because when the town is captured, um, when the British power is overthrown, he and Loveday are kind of lumped together. They're both captured. They're both shut up in 
a rather unpleasantly named room called the Chamber of Blood. <laughs> and every day, Masson thinks that the sunrise is going to be his last. And this is another uh, part of the book where or there's another story that's one of my favorites, and that's the one where after they've uh, imprisoned this horrible British uh, guy with Masson, he's got all these treasures that he's stolen from these people, and he tries to impress this guy who's holding him prisoner. He, he try, tries to uh, give him a gift of, of a ceremonial sword or, or knife. <laughs> he does, and he chooses most unwisely um, because what he tries to send as a gift, as a, like, let's all be friends kind of present, turns out to be a beautiful jewel ceremonial sword, this priceless artifact, which was actually looted from the guy that Loveday was sending it to. <laughs> so he's basically got his own sword being sent back to him with a kind of, look how wonderful I am and how much I respect you kind of note attached to it. So obviously, as soon as that happens, things go from bad to worse. Um, Loveday is chained up um, they, uh, Lovely and Masson are kind of paraded through the streets. Um, things are thrown down at them from the houses, from the side of the road, they're spat on, they're dragged through the city. They're shut up in a, in a kind of weird little outbuilding at the bottom of the garden and kept watch over day and night. And Masson really starts to believe that just through essentially an accident of bad luck, he's just done for, he's not going to make it out of this alive. He finally does manage to make his way out of captivity. He manages to talk his way out of um, imprisonment and makes his, makes his way back to the nearest British-held town, only to be locked up again under even worse conditions by the British, um, who have decided, and you know, this is a monumentally stupid British um, political officer or military governor um, who has decided that uh, Masson must be a Russian spy. Um, of course, he wasn't. There's no evidence that he was. But um, Masson is locked up for months. He's fed on dry bread and like sheep's entrails. And he's sort of interrogated by this guy in order to try to find some reason for hauling him up and putting him to death as a Russian spy. So it's like one bad thing after another. Mm. And while he's in prison, meanwhile, the British occupation of Afghanistan is crumbling. Um, they're able to reach Kabul, but they're not able to hold the country. They're, 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 they're not able to assure the loyalty of the people, the, the support of the, the mountain tribes. And... Gradually, the British occupation is just coming to pieces. So this is a point where basically everything that Masson worked for and everything he hoped to achieve is kind of falling apart around him. We do have this parade of charlatans and, and fakes who are coming through the area, and uh, it was somewhat unfortunate that this uh, Russian showed up who presented himself as an envoy who wanted to make a deal uh, with the government, and uh, nobody believed he was real, but but he actually was real. Yeah, so 
Russia sent an envoy to Afghanistan. This is a little earlier before the British uh-huh. occupation. Um, Russia sends an envoy to Afghanistan uh, called Zikovich, and no one believes he's, he's the real thing. He turns up um, with, a, with a letter three foot long, full of like seals and ribbons, and you know, dressed in this incredibly elaborate uniform. And and, and everyone thinks, thinks, good lord, I've seen a few, few scammers in my time, but this guy has <laughs> got to be one of the worst. Um, so no one takes him seriously until it's too late. And then um, the British realize that, no, this guy is the real thing. And they panic. And they think that, well, Russia must be trying to make an alliance with Afghanistan. They must be trying to station troops on the border and then have possibly have them sweep down into India. Um, they have all these like incredibly impressive Russian letters and reports which allegedly show all this, but unfortunately no one in India can actually read Russian. So they copy all these letters like very badly because no one knows how to write Cyrillic and send copies here and there being like, can anyone read this? Can anyone read this? Can anyone tell us if there's like a evil scheme happening in these letters? Um, so it's basically through fear of Russia that they are driven to um, lead this expedition into Afghanistan in an attempt to annex Afghanistan, which is, of course, something that backfires spectacularly, because before the British expedition, um, Afghanistan was very friendly towards Britain um, and towards the West in general. Uh, Western travelers could wander around Afghanistan completely as they pleased and be greeted with hospitality in every village, um, you know, never be really, or only rarely be under much of any kind of threat. And after that, that kind of warmth and support between Afghanistan and the West, that is broken forever. Mm. The book is The King's Shadow, Obsession, Betrayal, and the Deadly Quest for the Lost City of Alexandria, written by Edmund Richardson, who's my guest on the program today. And the real tragedy of this story is that Masson had been highly regarded back in England, uh, his his reports and the things that he'd sent back about his discoveries and, and the East India Company. He was sending back these treasures, including this amazing uh, golden uh, treasure that he found. And the East India Company really didn't respect what he was doing very much, but there were people back in England who appreciated his scholarship and, and were absolutely thrilled to be discovering what he was telling them. And he had hoped to write a book. He, he really wanted to write a book and, and give his view of what he had discovered. But it really wasn't meant to be, was it? No. He wanted to tell a story, and he wanted to tell the story of the interconnected ancient world and of these incredible treasures, which, as you say, he discovered. Um, this wonderful golden casket called the Bimaran casket, which is the earliest known image of the Buddha. It's it's truly remarkable because the Buddha's on it, the Buddha's dressed like a Greek. He's flanked by two Hindu gods. It's this remarkable collision of cultures and identities and ideas. But Nelson was heartbroken by the British invasion of Afghanistan. And the book he hoped to write of, you know, adventure and discovery and golden treasure and jewels and lost cities turned into this angry condemnation of British imperialism and of the war in Afghanistan. And no publisher would touch it. He, it sat 
neglected in publishers' offices for months. It was rejected. It was ignored. When he finally found someone who was willing to publish it, it was on the most um, unprofitable terms for him, just really a few pounds here and a few pounds there in exchange for his life's work. So he makes his way back to London because after the invasion, Afghanistan is really close to him. And he spends the rest of his life really dreaming of being able to get back, to get back to Alexandria, to get back to Afghanistan, to sit in the orchards around Kabul, to taste the summer fruits of the mountains of Afghanistan. And he writes and he writes and he writes, but the stories simply will not come. Mm-hmm. And he he tries to he tries to tell his story again and again and again, but he finds himself shut out and ignored by respectable British society. He is a working class kid. He's a deserter and this incredibly class conscious, incredibly sort of snobbish nineteenth century society just didn't want anything to do with him. They just showed him the door. And of course his cause wasn't helped by his inclination to point out at every turn the horrors of much of British imperialism, the ways in which you know, the British imperial rule had inflicted death and looting and slaughter on people across the world and the horrible decisions made by so many of the people in charge. Masson shouts this from the rooftops and, of course, the people in charge, the people profiting off British imperialism, do not appreciate this at all. So he spends much of the last of his life kind of shoved aside, um, living this strange, sad, marginal life um, in London, haunting the reading rooms of the British Library and sort of hoping again and again that he'll find a way to pick up his class. I uh, was fascinated by your your book, and I I have been a huge lover of uh, ancient history since my earliest days as a reader, and, and one of my favorite classes I ever took was was a class in ancient history, and I can remember our professor talking about the uh, excavation at, at uh, Troy by Heinrich Schliemann, and I had no clue until I read your book what a, a violent method of archaeology was, was being employed there, and, and I'm sure elsewhere. This was a big shock to me. Archaeology's early history is pretty inglorious, it's got to be said. Um, it was in many cases, a form of treasure hunting, essentially, where people were looking for something to confirm a story that they already had in their hands. Mm. And Heinrich Schliemann, who is without a doubt one of the greatest con men of the 19th century, he is a liar, a fraudster, a swindler, and an archaeologist um, of the highest level. When he was discovering Troy basically wanted confirmation of Homer's story. And he dug straight through and blew straight through literally anything in the way. And I do mean blew straight through quite literally because he used dynamite as one of his principal tools of excavation. Um, Now, Troy, like like just about every other ancient city, is, is a site of many layers. It's like one city built on top of the ruins of another, built on top of the ruins of another. And Schliemann basically dynamited straight through a lot of 
the later layers in order to reach what he thought was Homeric Troy. It was only actually later on that people realized that what Schliemann called Homeric Troy was hundreds and hundreds of years before the time of any historical Trojan War could have taken place. Hmm. Schliemann had actually blown up most of the ruins of Homeric Troy, if such a city existed, on his search for it. It's really obscene. Well, Edmund, uh, I'm sure we have listeners out there who are wondering about you. They're wondering, who is this guy? Uh, Can you give us your pocket biography? So I have a weakness for tall stories. I I studied at Cambridge. I did my my doctorate there, and I, I kind of ended up falling down a whole bunch of rabbit holes about the ways in which we remember the past, the ways in which we make the past our own. So I did some work at Princeton, and then I came back across the Atlantic, and um, I teach at Durham in the UK now. And I guess I'm interested in why people care about the past, and particularly how those relationships go wrong. So the archaeologist who blows up the lost city he's looking for, the prophet who can't get the end of the world right, the, the, the storyteller who ends up changing history. I, I'm interested in the way so much of our knowledge of the past is formed by these strange and wonderful characters, by people like Charles Masson, these kind of tellers of tall tales fighting their way through the snow, chasing impossible dreams. I think it's, it's a wonderful kind of example of how pursuing one's wildest dreams and pursuing the tallest tales can truly change the world. When you were doing your research for this, uh, it sounds like you went to uh, Pennsylvania, for one thing. Uh, did you also go to places like Afghanistan? I didn't make it to Afghanistan itself. I, I wanted to go, and then uh, when I was just about to set off, I was told the hotel I was about to check into had been uh, partially blown up. Oh. Um, but um, I did I did spend a lot of time in, in India and in, uh, the archives of, uh, around that. There's some a lot of the, the, the remains of Nassim's life as a spy are in the National Archives of India. There's wonderful things in the Punjab archives in Lahore and a lot of collections in, in London where they are the, the sort of more dubious deeds of the British East India Company um, lie hidden in these kind of giant, dusty, uh, leather-bound books. Well, I, I need to thank your publicist, Hector. Uh, he alerted me to this book. He said it was just about ready to come out in the U.S. He said, this is the most entertaining book that I've read all year. He says, you'll love it, Vic, and, and I agree. Uh, I learned a lot, and it it really is just a fascinating story, and, and I thank you for writing it and for uh, talking to us about it today. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you so much for taking the time. Is there another project, another book project uh, in the offing? I, I imagine it takes you quite a while to decide since it takes so long to write a book like this. I've been talked into writing a book about Alexander the Great. Now, this is a little bit of a quixotic enterprise because, you know, you could fill a good-sized room with books about Alexander the Great. I mean, even in back 
you know, 2,000 years ago in the first century AD, the Roman historian Arian says, well, why would why on earth does the world need another book about Alexander? <laughs> uh, right, now, his, his answer was, well, have you read the other ones? Uh, which was the kind of answer only a Roman historian could give. Uh, my justification is that over the last few years, there's been some really remarkable discoveries uh, in terms of Alexander's cities, in terms of you know, newly translated Egyptian and Babylonian sources, which really change everything we thought we knew about Alexander and his expedition. So I'm trying to find ways to tell this age-old story in a new way. Have you visited um, Masson's coins? I'm guessing they're in the British Museum or someplace like that. They are. They're in the British Museum. Uh, his coins and most of his finds are still there. Um, they've just—they've only really recently been fully catalogued. For decades, they kind of sat in the archives of first the British East India Company and then the British Museum, and people didn't really realize what they'd found. But um, thanks to some work by the British Museum over the last couple of decades, these coins and these finds have been now really catalogued and known more fully than ever before, and they're they're really now being put at the centerpiece of the British Museum's collections and displays. Well, Edmund, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure having you as a guest on the show. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to speak with you. My guest has been Edmund Richardson, and his book is The King's Shadow, Obsession, Betrayal, and the Deadly Quest for the Lost City of Alexandria, the story of Charles Masson. For The Book Nook, I'm Vic McCunis. <laughs>